Hello, welcome to Industry Insights with KPMG Economics, Energy Edition. Industry Insights with KPMG Economics is a series featuring Chief Economist Diane Swank, exchanging ideas with the national sector leaders here at KPMG. In this edition, Diane compares notes with Angie Gilday, National Sector Leader for Energy, Natural Resources, and Chemicals. They talk about global issues facing the energy sector, such as availability of talent, supply chain issues, and the impact of ESG and climate risk. And most importantly, what are the opportunities facing the sector? And there are many. So let's get started. Diane, one constant theme that I'm hearing from both my clients and my colleagues is this topic around labor. I know you're a labor economist, so can you help us understand what is going on? Well, it's a little bit crazy right now, right? We've got an incredible labor demand still, even though the economy has seen a lot of rate hikes and the Fed's been trying to cool the economy with a constrained labor supply. And, you know, the labor force growth since February of 2020 has only been 0.8% in three years. That's after growing at a 1% rate during much of the 2010s. So that's a major slowdown. We're missing over 3.6 million workers that should have been in the workforce if we had gone on the trajectory we were on in the 2010s. And part of that, the biggest part is retirements by older baby boomers who are not coming back. Between 1995 and February 2020, we saw the over 65 crowd increasing their participation in the labor market consistently until February 2020. They hit a wall dropped out and they have not come back. Everything from the risk of contagion to the wealth effects tied to the surge in home values and long COVID have sidelined many people who were once participating as they were older in life. That's over 2 million of those missed workers alone. On top of it, we have a shortfall in immigration. There's beginning to see a catch up in legal immigration from the period 2017 to 2019, but we really came to almost standstill in 2020 and 2021. So that's a long way to go in terms of catching up. And we just don't have as many workers to replace those who are leaving. And then, of course, there were the souls we lost to COVID itself. Everything from long COVID reducing some of the ability of some people to work as much as they once could to the fact that, you know, we actually cut into our labor force because several hundred thousand workers were in that prime age group of sort of 25 to 54 year olds that you have in the labor force. So you put it all together and it's not surprising that Supply is constrained, but then you match that against what is continued strength in job demand. Job openings in December were about 60% above the pace we saw in February 2020. And even though they've come off of the hot pace by more high-frequency data that we see by the job postings by the individual companies that actually post jobs electronically now, they're still running much, much higher than they were in February 2020. So the collision of those two things together has meant that we're really missing a lot of workers. I think another layer of this as well is the pivot to work on in, from home, but also school online really affected the labor market. Not only did it diminish educational attainment, it was different by different race, different socioeconomic status, but also by gender. Women weathered the pivot online better than men. And women were already out attaining men before the pandemic in the millennial generation. And now we're seeing 
that that's been compounded and accelerated by the pandemic. So when people say they're looking for skills, not only is it a shortage of actual people, we've actually diminished the amount of training and education that people have gotten. There's no magic wand that can be waved to rectify the problem that we don't have a lot of kids in vocational training. And we need to really see a major shift in the education system. But again, real estate revenues at the local level pay for that. Well, you are hitting on some key issues that we are certainly feeling in the energy sector. The retirements and that increase of knowledge and skill sets we've lost, particularly in the engineering disciplines. We've been challenged from a trades perspective from welders and pipe fitters and utility linemen uh, who men make a large portion of those of those jobs. So we're seeing it in, in all kinds of ways. And it's certainly impacting us in the energy sector because we're seeing increases, unfortunately, in safety incidences. You don't have the skilled workforce out there that really know some of the challenges of working in these tough environments. And then we're also seeing it from a major capital project standpoint, just being able to complete the projects on time and over budget. So we're definitely feeling it here in the energy sector as well. What about the global supply chain? I know that's something that's slowly been coming back after wreaking a lot of havoc on businesses. What are you and your fellow economists seeing, especially in places like China and elsewhere in Asia? Well, the good news, of course, is that China is finally reopening. We saw, we're seeing their production come back a bit, and that is important. But for the moment, at least, some of the supply chain bottlenecks are beginning to ease, and that's the good news. As China further reopens, that will help to ease some of those pressures. We're also seeing a reshuffling of supply chains globally. We see a lot of movement towards places like Mexico, where we have in place the USMCA. We had trade you know, agreements in place that protect intellectual property and ensure that we can continue to import from something so close by as Mexico. So a lot of friendshoring is starting to happen in Mexico. We're also seeing the reshuffling within Asia. There's a move towards Vietnam, although that's dominated by Chinese companies, but also a move towards the Philippines. The Philippines is one of the faster growing economies next to India, which is the fastest growing economy in the world right now. I think the other issue that's going to become very important in supply chains and what we're still struggling with is the infrastructure spending that's ramping up in the United States. Not only is that further compromising the workers that are available in the energy sector for either renewable energies, engineers, all of the things that we have going on and also in the carbon fuels, but we also are seeing, you know, material costs go back up again because infrastructure bill that we desperately need, we need to fix our infrastructure, but it's all happening at once. And the timing couldn't be worse from the perspective of the Federal Reserve, given we're already in an inflationary environment that's not cold enough for them to ease up on monetary policy and lower rates instead of raise rates further. Yeah, we certainly see some of the supply chain challenges still here in the energy sector. The good news for us is if you look at the average rate count in North America, it's up about 47% compared in 2022 versus what it was in 2021. And the international average rig count for globally is around 13% increase. So that tells me that drilling is happening, activity is, is occurring, but globally, we still are really impacted by some of the challenges you mentioned. The shortage 
of labor that we talked about and some of the increased lead times, and especially in raw materials like steel, uh, definitely impacts us. And one of the things that I see on my end is suppliers are being really careful not to over invest in some of the capacity in their equipment like rigs and vessels and subsea equipment just because the future is, is uncertain. And so you see a really tight gap between the supply of those materials and equipment and demand. So it's it's still something challenging we're working out as well. You know, Angie, I just wanted to follow up on that one point with you. You know, the issue on uncertainty, especially for carbon fuel producers, you know, we want them to ramp up in this environment when yet they know they're being dealt with. We're dealing with the pivot to renewables and the desire to secure energy grids on that front. That delay that you're talking about is showing up in the investment data as well. And it's something that gets really lost in translation, I think, in terms of understanding why we're not seeing more oil production out there. And that's something that I think many people really don't understand. Many energy producers want to be energy producers for the long haul. They want to also lean into renewables. But in order to pivot into that, they can't be investing only in fossil fuels. And I think that's where a real challenge is as well. Yeah, that's right. And the energy sector has these last few years, notwithstanding, has underperformed the S&P 500. So what investors are really pushing these companies to do is return value to their shareholders. So it makes it really, really challenging to manage, especially with this, the topic around energy transition on the horizon as well. Well, let me pivot a little bit to the topic of ESG, because that's something that's definitely near and dear to us in the energy sector, both from a decarbonization standpoint, as well as helping other companies and industries provide lower and cleaner types of energy fuels. So how do you look at ESG as an economist? First of all, as a labor economist, we know that unless you only want to have baby boomers as the people who you're going to be recruiting that are now participating less in the labor force than they were pre-pandemic, you're going to be out of luck in terms of the talent pool that you can actually attract. And that's because we know that every single age group up to baby boomers, the over 65 crowd in particular, it's more important to them that not only does their employer look at ESG on all sides of ESE, the environment, social issues, governance, but walks the talk. And that gets to be a really hard issue, of course, because we don't still have the metrics we need to say how compliant we are on ESG. You really have to lean into these ESG targets and figure out how you can also make sure that you're engaging with your workers and that they're on board with what you're doing in terms of meeting your ESG targets and aware of it, because otherwise they're not going to be as interested in working for you. And that didn't once matter. Well, now you're competing for talent and the labor shortages we're facing are more structural than cyclical in nature. There are some real challenges that we should be moving on the margins in terms of participation for both men and women in the United States in particular, because we know that our participation rate in the United States among both groups is the lowest among the G20, which is really only the G19 because it doesn't include Russia anymore. In terms of forecasting, there's been all kinds of efforts to try to involve climatologists, to try to do scenarios, to try to really think about what does 
the increase in the incidence of extreme weather events, even if we were to make somehow magically some of the net zero targets for 2030 or 2050, we would still have an increase in the number of extreme weather events around the world than we have today. And that increase in incidence of extreme weather events adds to the shocks that we see and the fragility we see and has been revealed by the pandemic in terms of supply chains. We're looking at a world that's more susceptible to these external shocks that makes it more inflation prone to bouts of booms and busts and interrupted in those business cycles by interest rate hikes much more often rather than interest rate cuts. So you're talking about a higher cost of capital environment, an environment that you you really have to hedge a lot more against in terms of your cost side of the equation because an interruption due to an extreme weather event is much more costly than it was in the past. The other issue is, of course, insurance. Many energy companies, and I'll direct this back at you, Angie, You know, how are they dealing with the issues of insurance is one of the areas that is the most conscious of environmental risk, especially on the ESG front. And in terms of um, financial firms, also whether the Fed stress tests them on on it or not, which they currently do not on environmental standards, but financial institutions are already pulling back from lending into areas of the economy and into regions of the world that are most at risk for extreme climate event. How's your industry dealing with that? Well, Diane, you have hit on a number of things that we are dealing with front and center in terms of agendas for our senior executives in the energy sector. You mentioned insurance. Companies are finding they can no longer get insurance, so they're having to self-insure, which that adds a whole nother level of financial risk and uh, resilience that they have to plan for in the event, not if, but when a severe weather event happens. That was KPMG sector leader Angie Gilday and chief economist Diane Swank discussing challenges and opportunities for the energy, natural resources, and chemical sector. Subscribe to hear Diane's conversations with our other sector leaders from healthcare and life sciences, technology, and consumer and retail.